Good evening, everybody. Uh, well, uh, tonight I am your host, and we have in the back room Sean and Gaz. So, if you'd like to put your questions, if you have any, I hope you have. I hope you have lots because um, the the guest tonight is Rod Driver, and he's doing another one of his beginners guides. Um, this one is to U.S. and U.K. war crimes, war criminals. Um, we all know. We, we all know of the recent Iraq war, but do we know as, men, as many details as Rod is going to tell us about? And before we start, I would like to say that um, we invite Rod on to, to give his, his monologue, so to speak, which lasts about 20 minutes. So we did have a few comments the week before last that um, it should be more of a conversation, but it's very difficult to have a conversation when Rod is so informed. And please listen up, listen closely to what he says, because it's just fascinating. So can we bring Rod in, please? Hello, Hi, Rod. After that build up, you better be bloody good. I'll do my best. <laughs> so tonight we're talking about uh, US and war, UK war crimes um, after 2001. Is this after 9-11? That's, that's correct. So last week we uh, sort of made a start on giving people an overview uh, of wow. what Britain and America had been up to in the 20th century. And it's, uh, it's a huge number of war crimes committed by America with Britain as its uh, ally. And today we're going to bring that up to date by looking at uh, the sort of major war crimes that Britain and America have committed uh, since 2001. So that would be Iraq and Afghanistan and then Libya and Syria and a little bit about Yemen. So shall I make a start? Um, well, you could. Uh, yes, I'm trying to think, you know, this all relates to we were talking earlier about Kareem Dennis, uh, Loki. Um, uh, making such brilliant statements uh, about the plight of the refugees coming to our shores. And everybody I know watching is really concerned about the fascistic way that our government is turning ordinary people against other human beings who are just trying to escape the bombs that we create and the wars that we perpetrate on their lands. So, yes, please. So that, that's a really good point. We'll come on to the, uh, the migration at the end. So I'll give you an overview uh, for the first half hour or so, and then we can do a little bit of uh, Q&A uh, at the end. So uh, most people will be aware that in 2001, terrorists attacked the World Trade Center Twin Towers uh, in New York uh, on an event that was that's now known as 9-11. And since then, America has pursued what it calls a global war on terror. And the first thing they did as part of the global war on terror was to invade Afghanistan in 2001. Now, what we're going to discover as we go through tonight is that the reasons that politicians give for their actions overseas are often very different from the evidence that, that's uh, available in terms of why they're really doing uh, what they're doing. So if you uh, look at Afghanistan, for many, many years, uh, it's been considered to be the central part of what is sometimes called the grand chessboard. So this is about uh, sort of what's called global geostrategy in Central Asia. It's about controlling oil and gas resources and pipelines. 
And if you uh, look at the government's justifications for their attack on Afghanistan, firstly, they said they wanted to pursue Osama bin Laden, who was uh, named as the leader of the terrorists of 9-11. They also said that they uh, wanted to replace the Taliban, who were uh, a very violent government uh, in power in Afghanistan at the time. So what we would generally call humanitarian intentions. But the interesting thing was that the American government gave plenty of warning that they were about to attack Afghanistan. So all of the any if there were any uh, terrorists uh, taking uh, refuge in Afghanistan, they had enough time to leave. And the fact that most of the terrorists actually hailed from Saudi Arabia was sort of glossed over. So America never made any attempt to do anything in relation to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and then the other thing about the Taliban was that, in fact, as soon as America had a sort of military occupation after the invasion in Afghanistan, the Taliban were merely replaced by equally violent warlords. So the humanitarian pretext never really made uh, any sense. Now, various uh, academics have researched what was going on in relation to relationships between the United States and the Taliban prior to 9-11. And they've discovered that the US was negotiating with the Taliban about building pipelines uh, throughout the 1990s. And in July 2001, two months before 9-11, those talks had been breaking down. And so the Americans had threatened to bury the Taliban under a carpet of bombs because they were not being sufficiently cooperative in relation to pipeline negotiations. And many people noted at the time, immediately after the invasion, that the first American representative had very strong connections to the oil industry. And so what we've seen um, in the last year uh, in relation to Afghanistan is that the Americans have carried out what we would call a partial withdrawal. They brought some of their troops out of Afghanistan. And that's given the opportunity for various people to sort of investigate what's been going on there for the last 20 years. And it rather confirms the general sort of picture that I presented last week, which is that war is a racket, that actually there are a great many people making an awful lot of money from war. And in fact, the American government has spent vast amounts of money, many, many billions of dollars in Afghanistan, but very little of it has gone to the Afghan government to help build a stable and functioning country. It's actually just been filtered away by various corrupt businesses who have been profiteering from war. And so the country is still in chaos, despite American soldiers having occupied the country for 20 years. Now, in 2010, WikiLeaks uh, accessed or was given um, hundreds of thousands of documents relating to Afghanistan. And they actually ran some software to add up how many deaths the United States military had caused in Afghanistan. So the documents they'd received were the secret war logs of the US government. And the death toll was hundreds of thousands. And this was violent death. Now, most deaths in war are from disease and other things like that. So in fact, the total death toll in Afghanistan is astronomical, but nobody will ever know the true, uh, the true figure. If we then look at Iraq, so uh, Iraq was invaded in 2003, but it's worth understanding a little bit about what went on. So 
Uh, Britain and America overthrew the leadership of Iraq in 1963. And then Saddam Hussein became the president there in 1979. And he was known to be a brutal dictator. And then for much of the next decade, throughout the 1980s, uh, Britain and America were supplying weapons to Saddam Hussein so that he could fight a war against his neighbor, Iran. And at one point, in fact, the Americans were supplying both sides in that war to try and keep the war going, to keep the fight even, basically to make it as destructive as possible to both countries. Now, this war ended towards the end of the 1980s. And in 1991, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Now, there are all sorts of complex issues about why he invaded Kuwait. But um, the American uh, President H.W. Bush stated that what America wanted to do was to prevent a dictator, Saddam Hussein, from seizing control of a quarter of the world's oil reserves. And so we had in 1991 what's labeled Gulf War One, where America went and attacked Saddam's military, but did not overthrow Saddam Hussein. Now, what's interesting is that various people put forward peaceful possible solutions that were rejected by the United States. So the United States actually wanted to attack and wanted to destroy Saddam's military. And then throughout the 1990s, uh, America was bombing Iraq approximately once every three days. And that went on for about 12 years. And then finally, by 2003, we had what most people now think of as the Iraq War. Some people call it Gulf War II, although because the bombing had continued for the whole period, it's, it's not entirely separate from Gulf War I. So this was a major invasion by the American military in 2003, and they have occupied the country ever since, so for almost 20 years. Now, what was notable was that when the military went into Iraq, they immediately secured the oil fields and the Ministry of Oil but they left everything else in chaos. And that's pretty much how it has remained uh, in the intervening two decades. Now, there was a great deal of propaganda in relation to the invasion of Iraq. So first, we were told that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. Now, we're going to talk about that in more detail in a future week. But in fact, it was always a huge exaggeration. At worst, Saddam Hussein would have had some very old chemical small weapons that could be used on a battlefield, but not what any normal person would think of as weapons of mass destruction. Then we were told Saddam Hussein had links to terrorists. Well, in fact, this was never likely to be true because Saddam Hussein ran a secular government. And in fact, he opposed the religious extremism of the terrorists. Then we were told that Saddam Hussein, we had to go and attack Iraq for humanitarian reasons. But of course, that was always nonsense, because even when he had been carrying out his most brutal atrocities in the past, Britain and America had been supporting him. And there were repeated lies from the government. These were repeated without question by the media. So there are very specific things, such as him trying to buy nuclear material from Africa. But in fact, it became very clear that the documents in relation to that were entirely forged. And eventually we had what was called the dodgy dossier, which was what turned out to be a nonsensical dossier uh, cobbled together to try and exaggerate the threat of weapons of mass destruction. Now, what was interesting about the, the propaganda in relation to Iraq was that millions of people saw through the propaganda. So there were enormous protests in London, in New York, in many other major cities and in many other 
countries. And what everyone finally realized is that however many millions of people protest, the government now has so much power domestically that actually they can just ignore the protesters. And the wars went ahead, the war, the invasion went ahead anyway. Now, a great deal of information has come out since the invasion took place, telling us that, in fact, all of this was complete nonsense. So the former head of the CIA, George Tenet, uh, he briefed George Bush that there were no weapons of mass destruction. Various intelligence insiders in Britain and America have admitted that the intelligence was being fixed around the plan to invade. And in fact, intelligent people have said they were threatened, that their careers were threatened if they didn't come up with intelligence that supported the plan. There was a very specific incident that happened on 9-11 itself, where Donald Rumsfeld, who I believe was Secretary of State in the United States at the time, wrote a handwritten memo which said, best info fast, judge whether good enough hit SH, meaning Saddam Hussein, at same time, not only UBL, meaning Osama bin Laden, sweep it all up, things related and not. Now, a document like that is a really great insight into how the, the decision makers in Britain and America really think. They don't really care about the truth. All they care about is they have particular uh, things that they want to do. In this case, they wanted to attack Iraq, and they would use any anything they could that would help them justify uh, that, uh, that attack. And the CIA have admitted they've been unable to find anything that would link Saddam Hussein to 9-11 or, or terrorism more generally. And even Tony Blair, who's not really somebody that I cite very often when I'm giving these presentations, but he's admitted that the that Vice President Dick Cheney wanted forcible regime change in all Middle East countries hostile to US interests at the time. And in fact, probably the most compelling evidence about the fact that this was all exaggerated, and this was all pre-planned, comes from a former American general called Wesley Clark, who admitted having discussions with Donald Rumsfeld, where he was told that the plan was to overthrow the governments of seven countries in five years. This was again back in 2001. So those seven countries were Iraq, Syria, and Libya, all of which have now been destroyed, Sudan, which has been split into a number of different parts, Somalia, which was actually attacked in 2006 initially, and then again later on, and then also Lebanon and Iran. So you start to see that the justifications for all of these wars are simply that. They're just justifications, that it's all about American power in order to control resources, particularly oil, and to get leaders into power in other countries who will support US uh, goals. The latest evidence says that the total death toll in Iraq is probably approaching two and a half million because of uh, the invasion. The country rapidly fell apart into what were called regional power bases, where there was ethnic cleansing uh, with Sunni groups in some places and Shia groups in others, and other people forced out, and there was mass uh, emigration. Um, so the country has been in chaos, just like Afghanistan, for the last 20 years. So that was back in 2003. If we then leap ahead to, uh, to Barack Obama, who replaced um, George Bush, everybody, uh, I'll take that back, not everybody, most commentators thought that Barack Obama would be much better than George Bush. 
But in fact, he turned out to be just as militaristic and violent. And so he and Hillary Clinton were responsible for attacks on Libya and Syria. And they're the driving force, along with Saudi Arabia, on attacks on Yemen. So in fact, at one point, Obama actually boasted of bombing seven countries. So the war in Afghanistan spread into Pakistan, and he also carried out attacks on Somalia. He massively ramped up drone assassinations, completely undermining the idea of the rule of law, which is it's basically murder by presidential decree. Uh, and it's widely accepted that the drone assassinations not only slaughter large numbers of innocent people, but actually they recruit terrorists and they recruit supporters of terrorists in other countries because so many people see innocent people being slaughtered that they then uh, object to what uh, America is doing overseas. And so we, we sort of see this, uh, something that we've talked about in the past, that there's no real difference between the major parties. So in America, you have the Democrats and the Republicans. Well, uh, you had George Bush from the Republicans and you had Obama from the Democrats. They were both brutal and militaristic. Similarly, in Britain, you had Tony Blair from the Labour Party and you had David Cameron, who was in power in 2011. So he was the leader here when we participated in the destruction of, uh, of Libya. And he was from the Conservative Party. So really no difference between the parties uh, overseas. So if we look at the events of 2011, some people will remember something called the Arab Spring. So this was various uh, Arab countries where people were protesting against very poor leadership. And so in Tunisia, Egypt, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, people were protesting against their uh, governments. But the United States was an active supporter of those governments, even though they had terrible human rights records. And so no assistance was ever given to the protesters in those countries. And in fact, the governments mostly managed to stop the protesters, sometimes with considerable violence. If you look at Libya and Syria, there were protests there also, but they were rather different. And the evidence has emerged that they were not peaceful protesters, as was the case in the other countries, but they were actually violent uh, terrorists. So if we begin by focusing on Libya, uh, in 2011, America flew approximately 26,000 bombing raids on Libya. So it was dropping huge quantities of bombs. It was killing a lot of people and it was completely destroying the infrastructure of the country. So what we've seen is a huge death toll. Again, nobody knows the true figures, ethnic cleansing and huge numbers of people displaced from their homes. And the propaganda uh, in relation to Libya uh, was quite interesting. So at one point, uh, we were told that Gaddafi, who was the leader of Libya at the time, was giving Viagra to his soldiers to encourage them to rape people. Now, and this, this propaganda was even repeated by some of the major human rights organizations, even though there was actually no evidence that it was true. And most people have sort of gone back on that claim and said, actually, no, we never saw uh, anything to support that. And then we were also told that the attack on Libya was again humanitarian, that it was to avert a massacre. Well, savvy writers such as John Pilger pointed out at the time that this was complete nonsense. And in 2016, the British Parliament had a major investigation to look at whether that was true and concluded that there was no evidence. So if we go back to uh, WikiLeaks, there were 250,000 documents that um, were sent to WikiLeaks 
talking about Libya and Gaddafi. Many of them talked about oil as being the main focus of British, American and French interest in the country. There were a particular set of emails, which were the communications between advisors to Hillary Clinton and the French leader Sarkozy. And they listed very specifically what the French were interested in in Libya. And it's, it's worth uh, sort of understanding this in some detail. So firstly, they wanted access to Libyan oil reserves and for French companies to be rewarded with contracts. But this is the most important point. They wanted to ensure French influence in the region and to prevent Gaddafi's influence in French-speaking parts of Africa. In particular, they wanted to stop the creation of an African currency that would replace the dominant French currency that's still used in many African countries. Yeah. And, and the new currency that Gaddafi wanted to create would actually possibly play an important role in unifying Africa. So this is an incredibly important reason. We'll talk a little bit more about that in, in a second. Further documents came out relating to American motives to attack uh, Gaddafi, and it included things like boosting Barack Obama's popularity. So sometimes the most trivial things can be a reason. And in fact, this is a kind of historical thing that unpopular leaders throughout the world have found it very, very useful to have a foreign war to unify support behind them in their own country. Now, the documents show that leaders in America understood very clearly that removing Gaddafi would increase terrorism. And they also understood that the opposition to Gaddafi was not moderate, but was very, very violent terrorists. And once again, Gaddafi's son, in this case, was trying to negotiate a peaceful outcome, but Hillary Clinton particularly was not interested in peace negotiations. So it's important to understand that Gaddafi, whatever his human rights record may or may not have been, and I try not to get bogged down in that because it actually slightly misses the point because Britain and America never actually do anything for humanitarian reasons. No. He actually had a very positive role in trying to unify Africa. He tried to develop all sorts of technology <laughs> that would um, bypass European systems, which were extracting wealth from various nations in Africa. He wanted to develop an African monetary fund and African banks to avoid the exploitation by French and American and other international organizations. And one thing that was really crucial that I, I picked up on with the French documents was that the French currency really strangles development of many former French colonies in Africa. And if they could create a new currency where oil would be traded in the new currency and not in US dollars, it would completely change the balance of power between Africa, which is currently exploited by advanced nations, and the rest of the world. Africa would finally have a chance to take control of its own sort of resources and systems. Another thing that people aren't aware of when we're discussing the, the countries that Britain and America have destroyed is that Iraq and Libya were pretty much first world countries before they were invaded. So Libya actually had the highest standard of living by some margin of any country in Africa. And Iraq was probably first world living standards by about 1990 before it was destroyed. If we look at Syria, some documents came out referring to what was being talked about in America in 2007. And the Americans admitted 
they were creating what they called a militant front of extremists, which is another way of saying an army of terrorists, uh, by working with Saudi Arabia and Israel with the intention of using that army of terrorists to destabilize Syria and to overthrow uh, Assad, the leader of Syria. So you've got to remember that was right back in 2007. So for many years before the invasion or the attack on Syria, uh, America and various other countries had been working to destabilize uh, Syria. So you had a what's called a proxy army. That's a sort of uh, a, an army that's not your own army. It's somebody else doing the fighting. But Britain and America were providing bombs and missiles and technical support. And the CIA had a huge budget for training and arming the terrorists. And probably uh, if America and Britain had been able to get their way, Assad would have been overthrown. But in fact, in 2015, Russia stepped in to uh, protect Assad. Uh, and Russia and Syria, Russia and Assad together have stabilized parts of the country, but other parts are still uh, in chaos. The best estimate of deaths is about 400,000, although again, that's still only an estimate. And America is still trying to continue with sanctions on Syria. And we'll talk about sanctions in a future week, but they can have huge detrimental consequences. If we look at the propaganda in relation to Syria, it was extremely successful. In particular, there was propaganda about the use of chemical weapons by Assad. Now, in fact, some whistleblowers came forward from the chemical weapons organization called the OPCW. These were the people who went to inspect what was going on in Syria. And they came out and said, listen, the report that the OC OPCW has written saying Assad's this bad guy using chemical weapons, it's not true. That's not what we saw at all. Now, in fact, whilst one would hope that the mainstream media would listen to these whistleblowers and discuss what they're saying and challenge government officials with their evidence. In fact, the mainstream media did the opposite and they smeared the whistleblowers. And this seems to be a, a pattern that we're seeing more and more. And we've seen it with Julian Assange, where anybody who challenges the mainstream narrative is smeared by the mainstream press. Now, they the... disappeared like David Kelly. Yes. Well, so we'll come and talk about people like David Kelly um at, at the end because i haven't researched him in any uh, sort of great depth but it's it's always been the case that every now and again a, a, a dissenting opinion will come forward and then strange things will happen to them or they'll be smeared and and so on now the british government tried to claim that there was no uk involvement in the attacks on syria but in fact again they had manipulated the situation they had actually loaned pilots to fly with the Canadian Air Force. And in fact, eventually it became clear that British involvement in Syria was even worse than our involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there was an additional layer to the propaganda in relation to Syria, where British PSYOPs organizations, so that's psychological operations, so intelligence agencies and so on, were funding citizen journalists in Syria to put out propaganda that supported the British and American uh, attacks to, to continue destabilizing um, Syria. Now, I'm just going to mention briefly Yemen. So most people will have seen in the mainstream news that Saudi Arabia uh, has created huge amounts of destruction uh, in Yemen for the last few years. But in fact, Saudi Arabia couldn't do that without weapons and expertise and ongoing support 
from America, Britain and France who supply most of their weapons, but also supply specialists to maintain the weapons and, and so on. So in Yemen, uh, we've seen that millions have been displaced, needing aid. Hospitals have been targeted. Much of the country has been uh, destroyed. So whilst the, again, it's a sort of proxy army, it's the Saudi army primarily doing the fighting. Again, it's really a US-driven war um, fixing yes. the general pattern of all the things we've seen. From Professor Brown from uh, a university, um, Birkbank, is it called? Birkbank. Yeah. Birkbank, that's it. He, he um, said, well, a lot of people have said um, the people there thought that they were at war with America because all the bombs said USA printed on them, you know, had USA printed on them. So that's, that's why they didn't realize they were even at war with Saudi. Uh, sure. I'm the of all the five that I've discussed, the Yemen one is is the one that I've researched the least. And in fact, if the professor is an expert, perhaps we'll uh, we'll invite him onto the show and he can he can tell us more about that in the future. Yeah, that Professor really Ron good. Brown. He's uh, he's a fascinating authority on the subject. Fantastic. Okay, so I, I was just about to sort of wind up the presentation, and then we can go into. Um, uh, a few questions and answers. So the sort of summary of all five countries is basically that all five countries are now in chaos. And the, the fact that Britain and America supply weapons to the Saudis whilst it's destroying uh, Yemen rather undermines any claims that Britain and America might have to believe in human rights and so on. If you really took human rights seriously, you would never arm a country like Saudi Arabia whilst it's destroying uh, Yemen. Uh, similarly with Libya uh, and Syria, uh, the, the fact that we, we kill all of these people, we leave whole countries in chaos, completely undermines anything that the British government uh, might say uh, about pretending to have genuine intentions uh, in these uh, these countries. That's become uh, so evident now, hasn't it, with the with the onset of uh, this fascistic way of dealing with uh, refugees from those bombs. Well, I think that's a really good uh, good point. So you mentioned at the beginning this uh, the former rapper Loki, whose name is Kareem Dennis. He's doing some outstanding uh, sort of interviews and videos and short presentations. Uh, that people can find online. With and Mint he did one just press news. Yes. Mint press news. Thank you. And and he's he did one the other day, which was just a very short sort of thing about migration, saying, look, if you watch the mainstream media, uh, and, and I this is something that I, I talk to people about as well in, in relation to the propaganda of the mainstream media. Whenever they have a conversation about migration, it sort of begins at the borders. Yeah. It's as if these people just, for whatever random reason, they leave their home country and they're all trying to come here and we complain there's a big problem at our borders and our solution is to say, well, let's put them all in Calais and they, they die on the boats coming over the channel and so on. What is never discussed in the mainstream media is asking the question, what role does Britain and what role do other advanced nations such as America play in wrecking other countries. Yeah. Now, uh, most the vast majority of people, given a choice, 
would like to live in a country where they feel comfortable, they're surrounded by friends and relatives, they understand the culture, they understand the language. And so people on the whole are leaving other countries because it's impossible for them to have a decent life in those countries. Now, the things we've been talking about today have been Britain and America dropping bombs all over other countries and making the whole country into chaos, which is why many of the people migrating here at the moment are from these war zones. They're from Afghanistan, they're from Iraq, and so on. But there's a wider issue, which is not just the bombs. And we're going to talk about this in future presentations. And that is the role that America and Britain and other advanced nations play in manipulating the economic circumstances of other countries. And we deliberately go out of our way to support extremely brutal governments in other countries who will structure their economies for the benefit of our companies, for rich and powerful people in Britain and America, but also it's beneficial to rich and powerful people in those countries too. But Do you think we're starting to see that beginning to happen here, where we're treated like, like we need to be destabilised? Because I, I, I see that happening a little bit um, with, with, the, with the manipulation of ordinary people into believing that these foreigners are our enemies and uh, that we must batten down the hatches and enforce our borders and, you know, um, and just become nationalists, um, which is, is not a good way to go, is it? No. Well, so th I think there's a lot of kind of, there's like that's like sort of eight questions in in one, and I'm trying. It's all right. No, it's a it's a complex topic, and I won't try to engage with all of them at the moment. But the the thing, the first thing that you started with, was saying, are we going this way ourselves? There was something fascinating in that I wrote initially about what happens in poor countries, and I used to write under the kind of expression "holding back the world." So this is what Britain and America do, both militarily and economically, in poor countries. To, to keep poor countries poor, basically, and to make sure there's a transfer of wealth from poor countries to us. Yeah. And the policies are things like austerity and privatization. And of course, what people have realized since 2008, very clearly, is those same policies are being now applied in advanced nations. So yeah. we've seen austerity having devastating consequences, especially in Greece. And of course, we're always talking about the ongoing privatization of the NHS and so on. And you start to realize it's actually the same policies. And they very deliberately are, are not about improving life for everyone. They're actually deliberate policies that will end up enriching a small proportion of the population at the expense of the poorer half of the population. And yeah. You can see it really obviously in poor countries, but it's becoming more and more obvious uh, here in Britain and in America where we're seeing inequality going up and up and up. Well, it's another way of controlling the populace as well, isn't it? And preventing protest, you know, where where in, 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 in a foreign country you're able to just go and drone bomb them. You're not able to drone bomb them quite yet in, in the UK, for example. So what do you do to, to stop these people that are standing up and demanding that the NHS remain remain open to all, regardless of income? Um, so all you can do is enforce austerity, a false narrative of austerity as well. There is absolutely, it's a political gambit 
the, this this austerity thing has actually got no basis in fact. So the, all they can do is in, enslave, enslave the people into poverty so that they have, they're just thinking about surviving. And when you're thinking about surviving, as we've seen with all the refugees that are, that are just pouring across the world, um, when, you're, when you're surrounded by despair, uh, what do you do? You, you can only concentrate on surviving. You can't think, oh, well, I'll fight for the solidarity with, with, in solidarity with, with workers who want better pay because you're too busy thinking about how are you going to eat tomorrow? How are your children going to eat tomorrow? So I think those are all, those are all very good points in terms of what's sort of going on in country after country about how ordinary people are finding it very, very difficult uh, at the moment and uh, about how difficult it is for ordinary people to sort of get organized in order to try and bring about meaningful change. And of course, we've talked about that quite a lot in um, other sessions where we've talked about the fact that Britain and America are no longer really functioning democracies. <laughs> if they ever were. <laughs> well, you know, if they ever one, were. One, one of the things that, that I've, I've said in uh, previous presentations about uh, the failures of democracy and so on, is that I think there was a short spell after World War II, about 20 years up until about 1970, when in both Britain and America, something resembling democracy seemed to be working. Yeah. And the living standards of ordinary people did seem to in, in, improve. Uh, the In Britain, the NHS was created and so on. But it does appear more and more as if that short period was not something that was going to be kind of, uh, set in stone and a long-term trend. It was just this 20-year... It was blip. an aberration. It was yeah. an aberration, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and we've seen that across the world. Um, you were saying earlier about Libya. We've all seen the photographs, I'm sure, of Libya before and after. You know, before it was a prosperous country with an equal society that, that lived happy lives. And afterwards, it was just devastated completely. And that has happened country after country, and it's happening here now as well. And I, I think that, that what we need to do is, is to relate this to our personal lives, because unless our personal lives are affected we are gentle there's a this is a complex issue as well how do we become so self-centered and so um so just focused on our own uh pleasures well it's been bred into us and educated into us in this country hasn't it but to to convince people i mean the the amount of people watching this show tonight uh, is very small so how do you reach the 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 populace of 60 odd million people you you know you can't you can't outweigh the 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 force of the narrative that's forced upon us so how do you do it you can only do it by relating to person personal lives of people and saying look if if you just see how your life is being made miserable in this way or that way and who is doing that? Look closely at who's doing that. It's not me and it's not you. It's the government. And it's it's a deliberate narrative that's that's enslaving you. Uh, so that's what I was just trying to do. 
So uh, I, I think it's interesting that when I when people understand the extent of the problems that I talk about and the scale of the criminality of the uh, the British and American governments, yeah. I think there's a there's a temptation for a lot of people. Their first reaction is to just kind of despair. They say, "Oh my God, I didn't know it's this bad." You know, or we might just as well give up. Yeah, we're but, all doomed. So yeah. the strange the strange thing is though, I am actually mildly optimistic about the young generation. I think young people have shown that they are attempting to get away from the mainstream media. Now, the fact that they kind of look at the internet more than the television uh, is a sort of step in the right direction. But it's important to understand that the, the mainstream TV broadcasters will try and dominate the internet. And They already um, are. They've closed yeah. down the political party in the UK uh, yesterday. You know, they've closed down all their Twitter accounts so that they can't they can't communicate. And many thousands of people belong to the Northern Independence Party or, or are members of the Northern Independence Party in the north of the UK has been enslaved and used and abused for, for many generations. And, uh, you know, so we, we already see the manipulation of social media. Facebook is, closes down all the independent news sites um and and twitter is now closing down um political parties i can't believe how can they do that but of course they can because their narrative is a global strategy to to uh stop people waking up so i i think you're right and in fact the, the tech companies are so important that at some point in the future we'll have to have an entire session devoted to them because we're seeing more and more examples of censorship of anyone who challenges the dominant narrative in a number of different fields and in particular there's a handful of academics who specialize in writing uh, propaganda studies so just excuse me one second well like like well i'll take over while you're doing that and have a have a go myself um john pilger um um craig craig who's just come out of prison um jonathan cook all these all these people who were venerated respected members of our press uh and, and our di diplomatic corps in the case of craig um you know they've all been they've all been beaten down uh, and craig was imprisoned julian assange is still in prison um and you know the insulate britain protesters if you want to take it that that's the current um the insulate britain protesters what are they asking for they're asking for the government to come tr to to come through on a promise that they made 20 odd years ago to insulate all the homes in britain um they <laughs> and they're being imprisoned for it so uh, and the protest law which is going to be um talked about in the lords in three days is it I might not be quite correct on that, but that is going to further limit our rights to protest. Oh, hi, Sean. Hello, Sean. <laughs> I was getting carried away there. Um, so I expect you've got lots of questions for Rob. Very, it was fascinating, actually. I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, no, people are fascinated, as always, by uh, Rob's presentation. Um, there's a few things that have come up in the chat that people weren't aware of, which that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's about educating yeah. people and, uh, and putting the narrative straight. Um, because, like you keep saying, 
we keep saying we're only being fed this one narrative from the mainstream media. Um, and we've been saying this over and over again. There was just a few things, actually, that I wanted to pick up on um, that I've picked up through your presentation. Um, when you were talking about Libya, um, one of the things that was quite fascinating is, um, I don't know if you have heard of a guy called David Shaler, who was an ex-MI5 agent. Yes. Um, and he has, um, going back to the Manchester Arena bombings, um, um, Salman Abedi, who was the, uh, the guy who... Um, set off the bomb at the arena his family was involved in um the destruction of Gaddafi and he says he tells this story um that um MI5 recruited um um these uh, I can't remember what they're called the Liberation Front or the Libyan Dads or something like that um they were recruited to go over back over to Libya they were people they were living in this country they were Libyans living in this country in Manchester um, I'm from Manchester just for disclosure um and uh, Salman Abedi was a pupil at a, a local school to me um and um they were recruited by MI5 to go over uh, and to and to overthrow Gaddafi. So um, by MI5. So these were actually MI5 assets, is yeah. what he says. Um, I don't know how true that is, but that's that's how he tells the story. Um, so one of the questions that I have always had in the back of my mind, I just want to to bring it up, is if they were recruited by MI5 to go over to Libya to do this, then surely the Home Office would have had to grant them their passports to enable them to do that. Who was the Home Secretary at the time this happened? It was Theresa May. Don't tell me that she did not know that or she didn't have to grant them access to have their passports to go over there in, you yeah. know, to do this. I think Theresa May has a lot of questions to ask. And and talking of questions to be asked, um, Declassified UK, who we, we've worked with many times on this programme and they were at the Festival of Resistance. Uh, Matt Kennard is a, a friend of the programme. Um, they are actually doing a crowdfunder at the moment um, because they want to do a documentary and in, an investigative report on the murder of the 22 at the Manchester Arena um, and all about um, Salman Abedi and this case around um, these people who were um, recruited by MI5 to go Can over to Can we put Libya. a link for that in the chat? Yes, I've actually got one here ready to go. Um, oh, so um, I shall pop that in right now. Let me just paste it in. Right, there we go. So I've got oh. a question. It hasn't come in on the YouTube, I don't think. Um, can I ask why the recent Iraqi Holocaust million plus lives deliberately ended is not mentioned in mainstream media at all now? And uh, Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell are you are usually portrayed as venerated politicians. Uh, so that's just all consistent with the whole propaganda system where. Um, the, the whole purpose of the media these days, it's always been this way, but it's become more extreme, is just to sort of reinforce the status quo and make people unquestioning of the mainstream narrative. And so uh, e even the most clear-cut case of war crimes, which is, I'd say, Tony Blair, 
um, can be rehabilitated by the mainstream media. Yeah. They can appear regularly on discussion programs and his opinion can be taken seriously by people yeah. in the mainstream and so on. And yet anything that dissents, anything that challenges that narrative, that can mostly be sort of disappeared and yeah. it doesn't get talked about at all. And in fact, one of the things I've pointed out in a, a sort of earlier presentation about propaganda in general is that the main mechanism by which propaganda works is what is called censorship by omission, which is where the most important topics are never discussed. So you will never hear anything that challenges the uh, the mainstream view. Or if you do hear something that challenges the mainstream view, it's like one guest in a hundred. It's, it's, it's so incredibly uh, rare. I wanted to, to mention something that Sean had, had just said. I think it was really good that... Um, you mentioned declassified. So uh, some people won't be very familiar with the people who work on declassified. And you mentioned Matt Kennard, who's, who's done some outstanding work um, over the years. But his, his sort of main sort of partner at the um, declassified is Mark Curtis. And his name is worth knowing for our viewers. He is probably Britain's leading historian on the crimes of the British government. And he spent the first half of his sort of adult life going through what are called the declassified files. So those are the files that were kept secret for 20 or 30 years, but have now been made available to the public. And he went yeah. through them and they include all the documents about what politicians were actually saying to each other when they were lying to us in, in public about what was going on uh, in all sorts of situations overseas. And he's looked at these going back many, many uh, generations and it's he's just he's just got one about the Beatles so that tells you how long ago the access you know the access has just been granted to to the Beatles files yeah so some of these these things they can keep secret almost indefinitely if they really want to most most documents come out after a few decades um, but he just highlights war crime after war crime but he also highlights the fact that these secret documents, there's no reason they should be kept secret most of the time from a national security point of view or no. from the point of view of official secrets. You realise that these expressions are simply... ..propaganda. And uh, so uh, for anybody who's, who's a sort of viewer who's never had a look at what the work they do at Declassified UK, it really is by far the best website for national security journalism, proper critical journalism uh, in, in the UK. So it, it's well worth having a look at. Um, yeah, just to, um, you were also talking about um, how um, pr American presidents will take the country to war uh, to try and unify their support um, and also to win um, further elections as well, don't they? Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the film called The, uh, the Tale That Wagged the Dog. Um, I'm just going to put that out there and say to people, if you can get it anywhere, watch it. It is so pertinent when it comes to how the narrative is um, created today. Can you, can you just summarise the plot in a couple yeah, sentences? I've forgotten the detail. Yeah, I'll give you a bit of a synopsis, synopsis of it. Um, so it's a story about how the uh, president is due for, to come up for election. Um, however, he's been caught um, having affairs and there's all sorts of lewd things going on. So his advisors 
decide that they need to have um, a, a war, but they don't want to go to war. So they have a pretend war and they go to a Hollywood film director at, who is Dustin Hoffman, who Dustin Hoffman plays in brilliantly. Um, and um, he creates this um, film set where he gets this uh, actress on and they put all this um, um, green screen stuff around her where it, and she plays this woman in a headscarf with a baby and she's running through the streets of somewhere in Albania, running from war and, uh, and the president comes in and saves the day. Um, so, it, and it's all completely made up, this this story, but the, the public fall for it and, uh, and obviously the, the president's um, support um, starts to grow. I can't remember the ending of it. I don't know whether he gets found out or not. Probably does, but uh, definitely we could, worth uh, watching. We can relate that to uh, War of the Worlds. Um, the first time that was broadcast and read on Radio 4, I believe, um, that the, the, that evening they had, the police had, were inundated with phone calls and visits from people believing that actually believed that the world was being invaded by aliens because they they believed what they heard um yes indeed um madness absolute madness um and um the other thing is um you said when we were talking about um uh, america bombing syria um i know diana in the chat was very surprised um at um oh you mentioned that france was bombing in yemen she didn't realize that i didn't actually realize that either but also um israel's been bombing syria as well what what acts have, have israel got to grind with syria why are they involved in in why have they become involved in this is it because they're america's ally or so I'd, I'd have to, to research that to give a, a sort of meaningful uh, answer. Often what I find when I try to do the detailed research is you realise that going on behind the scenes of all of these things, there are all sorts of complex interactions between lots of different groups. And so people think of the US government as a single entity. But in fact, it's not. It's got you know over a dozen major intelligence departments or organisations not all of whom agree with each other all the time. And so, in, in fact, there was a, an American journalist, his name has slipped my mind just for a second, it will probably come back later, who did some great research on the Iraq war, saying, look, the reason that American strategy in Iraq keeps changing, you know, is it to do with controlling these oil fields? Is it about this? It's because the people who were dominant within the US government at any given moment in time kept changing and they had different strategies and they have different backers and so on. So the weapons companies wanted one thing. The oil companies wanted something slightly different. Uh, the private military contractors wanted something different. So you start to realize that it's actually incredibly hard to get honest answers in detail about what's really going on. So it would take a great deal of research to get a And I think you also um, leave out the uh, global corporate <coughs> construction companies or reconstruction companies because they often uh, they want a land trashed so that they can go and get all the contracts to rebuild it. Well, that's very true. That's something that's become more and more clear in relation to Afghanistan, that actually about all of these contractors just making lots and lots of money and yeah. not just American contractors, British companies as well, yeah. um, making profits in, in war zones. And in fact, uh, one writer sort of slightly jokingly um, said a few years ago that America has what they call 
a destroy and rebuild age strategy where they bomb a country back to the Stone Age and then their various companies um, get aid to reconstruction to to rebuild some of what they've destroyed and so on. I was just trying to think of the dominoes. Yeah, I was just trying to think of the name of the company that Dick Cheney worked for, and it's just come to me, Halliburton. Halliburton, they, yeah. Yeah, they, they won a lot of contracts, didn't they, over in mm. Iraq to uh, supposedly re- rebuild it, um, and I believe they've done NAF all um, yeah, well, over the years. be interesting to see how much money that they got. Yeah. Well, so it's very interesting. What you start to discover is that you think, in theory, politicians are meant to be sort of independent of all these kind of economic actors but in fact the conflicts of interest are everywhere and you see it in wars where um, senior personnel have major shareholdings in big companies and they have very very close relationships with these big companies and so on Uh, and there are awarding contracts left right and center to them and then when they leave office some years later lo and behold they get get directorship yeah where they're paid millions and so on so, so Zara, I, Zara Sultana outed that, didn't she? When she first went into the House of Commons, yeah. she opened up her goodie box and showed like British Airways courting her and uh, Google and you know all these all these giants, corporate giants, and nobody ever asked the question: Do we need any of these corporations? You know, surely, surely the local bank where the bank manager knows you and can decide whether you whether you're a good risk on uh, owning your own home or or starting up a business or whatever, is is really nothing to do with some guy who uh, who sh- who is a shareholder who lives in in an offshore funded place. So, so I think that's a really interesting point, and one of the things that I try to get people to question when I'm talking about economics is to say, is there a problem with having a profit motive attached to big companies? Because big companies have immense power. They have political power. They have so much money. They they employ lobbyists and populations companies. And if their main goal is pursuing their own profits, irrespective of the harms they do to society, then that's actually going to lead to very bad outcomes. And, And we see that all the time in, in sort um, of we have about a minute and a half left or less than that perhaps and there was one question um that didn't get asked uh the russia question when we go back to the second world war perhaps the first world war i don't know about their involvement in that um where russia was actually one of the main uh, people who saved who who saved the world really and they got they got smeared and lied about afterwards and extracted from the history books uh, uh, for, for for their part that they played um so uh, has russia and you said russia stepped in to save syria um so do you think that they are good good um good people in this well <laughs> the word good people is a slightly vague generalization and uh, president putin appears to be a very very savvy international player and so uh russia has interests in syria it was in russia's interests to maintain syria uh, with assad as the leader there um and it's highly unlikely that any of these countries uh would do anything 
purely out of the benevolence of their own hearts and so on. So we don't want to start assigning the wrong motives. <laughs> Major international players act out of self-interest. Now, I should apologise. I think my children have realised it's just come to eight o'clock. Yeah. So they're telling me that the broadcast is time to... Uh, it's time for everybody to go to, to read their children's stories before they go to bed. Yeah, yeah. We'll give you your daddy back now. <laughs> um, thanks very much rod um as always it's been a real pleasure and um, we look forward to the next episode which i think is going to carry on from this conversation um of talking about us and uk war crimes since 2001 and the um the disappearance of our civil liberties in the name of uh, national security um and how that's progressed up until today Lizzie, well, we, look, we look forward. We look forward to the next beginner's guide. Good night, children. Good night, Rod. Good night, Sean, and good night, everybody who's watching. Good, good night. night Thanks for joining us.